So here's what we're going to do. Let's read Titus chapter 3. I'll pray, and then we'll just dive into our teaching. This is the Word of God, Titus chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning. Paul writes to Titus these words. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for all people. Let's pray together. Father, uh, it is great to be among your people, people that you've called from all tribes, tongue, nations, and people groups, and we get to worship you and lift up the name of Jesus, your son, the word of God, eternal, who became flesh. What an honor and privilege that is. And we pray as we look at your word now, God, we pray that you would teach us your ways, that you would help us walk in your truth, that you would unite our hearts to worship and fear your name. And God, help us give thanks to you in this hearing, that it would invigorate our hearts to glorify your name forever and worship you. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, our mighty King. Amen. Well, if you're just joining us, last week we started a series. It's just a two-part series as we're looking through the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2 and Titus chapter 3. And this is an Advent series. Last week we talked about Advent, just briefly what it means. Advent simply means coming or appearing. So Advent is a season intended to focus our attention on Christmas, the coming and the appearing of Jesus. And now, if you were with us last week, we looked at Titus chapter 2. And in Titus chapter 2, we saw really one of the most direct references to Christmas in all the Bible. Paul summarized it in just seven words. You remember them from last week if you were here. They are these. For the grace of God has appeared. Meaning... In the birth of Jesus, grace visited earth. And his grace accomplished two things. It brought salvation from sin, which we talked about last week. Jesus is the one who releases us, delivers us from the bondage of sin. And we also saw that his grace trains us, trains us to renounce ungodliness which is indicative of this present world, and instead to be people marked by his grace who live for godliness, which is the defining feature of the world to come, the defining feature of eternal life that Jesus gives us. And Titus chapter 3, just like last week, is another great Christmas text, but Paul uses a couple more words than seven. This is Titus chapter 3, verse 4. Paul said, The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So again, you see here, right, another very straightforward reference to Christmas, but from a slightly different angle. Titus 2 was about God's grace, which has appeared. And 
In Titus 2, Paul detailed how God's grace changes us personally. And now Titus chapter 3, the focus is on God's goodness. And instead of the focus being on how God changes us personally, Titus chapter 3 gives us insight into how God wants to change us publicly. How does God's goodness change the way we interact publicly with the wider world? That's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, you might remember some time ago, this was 2007, uh, there was a debate. It was hosted by Christianity Today, and it was a debate between Christopher Hitchens, who was an eminent atheist, and he was debating this other pastor from Idaho. And they subsequently made this uh, debate into a documentary and to a book. But the question that Christopher Hitchens and this other pastor were debating was this, is Christianity good for the world? That was the question. Is Christianity good for the world? And Hitchens, of course, was answering in the negative. He said, no, Christianity is not good for the world. And he gave three reasons. His first reason was this. Although Christianity is often credited or credits itself with spreading moral precepts such as love thy neighbor, he said, I know of no evidence that such precepts derive from Christianity. He's right, by the way, it derives from Judaism, which is, you know, uh, Christianity 2.0, I guess you could say. Number two, many of the teaching of Christianity, as well as being incredibly mythical, are also immoral. Number three, if Christianity is going to claim credit for the work of outstanding Christians or for the labors of famous charities then it must in all honesty accept responsibility for the opposite, acknowledging all the bad that it has done as well. Now, you may be here this morning, and uh, you may resonate with Hitchens, and you might be sympathetic to some of Hitchens' reasons that he believes Christianity is not good for the world. And here's what I want to say. I don't intend to do kind of a point-by-point interaction with Hitchens. That's not my point this morning. Instead, simply I want to answer this question. How should Christians those who believe that God's goodness has visited us, how are we to live publicly? How has God's goodness affected and changed us in the way that we should live publicly? Paul actually answers that question directly. And he does so in Titus chapter 3. And Paul says, in light of God's goodness... Paul issues first a reminder and then a reason. First, a reminder of how to live publicly. There's a message to Titus and his first audience, which was on the island of Crete, but it's a message to us today as well. Secondly, Paul in verses 3 through 8, he gives us a reason for that reminder. So let's look at that first. The reminder of how Christians, those who believe in the goodness of God, are to live publicly. And Paul, in verse 1 reminds us how we as Christians are to relate to governing authorities, rulers and authorities, the government. Verse 1, Paul writes, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. It's quite interesting, by the way, uh, the perception that Roman society had of first century Christians and second century Christians, there was kind of this common perception that Christians were seditious, and that Christians were insurrectionists, that they were hostile to the Roman government. And we actually see this in the writings of a man. His name is Pliny the Younger. Pliny was an imperial governor, which means he was over this province, 
And in this province, he was kind of the chief judge and official of this Roman province. And in the year 112, this early 2nd century, he wrote a letter to the then emperor, Emperor Trajan. And the spirit of the letter was clear. Pliny wanted to say, Christians are a danger to the Roman social order. He said a number of reasons. He actually outlined three. He said, first, Christians and their worship gathering is a natural breeding ground for civil and political affairs. Groups of people come to worship a Lord other than Caesar. They said, second, these Christians refuse to offer sacrifices to the statue of Trajan himself, which means they must be unpatriotic. Thirdly, Christians were perceived as a danger to the Roman social order because they hurt the local economy. Pliny actually wrote these words. He said that the temples, which was a significant source of income for many of these Roman areas, he said during the time of Christians, all of the temples had been deserted and few purchasers of animal sacrifices could be found. And so what Pliny does in writing Trajan is he closes with these remarks, with this sense of urgency. Pliny writes, I hasten to consult you, Trajan, for the matter seemed to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many people of every age, every rank, of both sexes, are and will be endangered. For the contagion of the Christian superstition has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. But if we act quickly, it still seems possible to check and cure this contagion. That was the perception of Christianity, that Christians are a danger to the governing authorities in the Roman social order. They're a contagion that has to be suppressed. Otherwise, their superstition will spread and overturn all sense of order. And now that's really key that we understand that because Paul is saying, hey, counter to the perception of Rome That perception of Christians as seditious should not be reality. That perception is actually a misperception, or should be. And Paul says when it comes to how Christians are to relate to rulers and authorities, the state and the government, Paul makes it abundantly clear to Titus. Titus, remind your people. Remind them this. Remind your people when it comes to how we live publicly, we are supposed to have a posture of submission toward our rulers and authorities. Paul makes that clear. And by the way, this this isn't a new concept, right? This isn't a new concept for Paul or the Bible. Remember if you were here last week, Paul said this posture of submission should play out in a number of the relationships that we have. So Paul mentions in Titus chapter 2, verse 4, he said when it comes to the marital relationship... Talking to young women, Paul says, Train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Paul says this carries over as well into another set of relationships, the relationship between employer and employee. So he says, Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. In another place, this is Ephesians chapter 6. This is my favorite command in the Bible, by the way. This has to do with children and parents. Paul there says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for it is right. Honor your father and mother. He doesn't say submission there, but I like to remind my kids that that's what it means. It's as if Paul is saying, Paul's saying this, 
Hey, a distinctive mark, a distinctive mark of being a Christian, a distinctive posture of Christians toward those in authority should be one of submission. But we don't like that, do we? And why is that? Why is it that this call to submission to rulers and authority, why is that so challenging to us? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. In fact, I started just kind of jotting down a list, and I was just thinking very, you know, philosophically. I was like, well, we live in a democratic society, don't we? So a democratic society prizes individual choice over submission to rulers. And I thought of, well, we live in an individualistic culture, and we're kind of this champion, or, or we're champions of our rugged individual spirit. And we have this, this creed, don't tread on me, right? This creed that says personal autonomy and freedom, that is the greatest goal of a society. And so I kind of brought this list to my breakfast table this week, and we were talking about the fifth commandment, fifth commandment with my kids, and that's honor your father and mother, right? An idea of submission. And I'm asking my kids, why do you think we find this so challenging? Why do you think we find it so challenging to honor mom and dad and honor your teachers and honor your principal? And I thought my daughter Lainey, having spent enough time around me, she was going to say, well, of course it has to be our Western individualism and promotion of individual liberty and freedom. <laughs> I thought for sure she was going to say that because there's no other explanation. But Lainey just said something that was very profound. You know what she said? I don't want to. <laughs> she shows something that's very, very true of human nature. I say it's the truth of all of us, isn't it? That hardwired into our DNA, hardwired into our DNA is a rebellion against authority. We just don't want to. And the reason that that's hardwired into us is because really, the idea of submitting to authority is one of the first sins that was ever committed. You remember the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? God gave them one rule. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That was one rule that God gave to his people. And then very simply, after God had given this one rule, his one authority, uh, his one sign of authority, this tree, the serpent, Satan, comes into the Garden of Eden and he tempts Adam and Eve with these words. The serpent said to the woman, God said you're going to die. You, you, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You don't have to listen to God. You don't have to listen to any authority. What does God know? You don't have to submit. You can be like God. You can take God's place and have control over your life. You can be your own authority. And Adam and Eve, not submitting to the rule and authority of God, wanting to be rulers and authorities of their own lives, they take from the tree and they eat. So that's the long line of sin, starting with the first authority, God, and Adam and Eve rebelling against it. That's why it's hardwired into our DNA. I'm reading this story right now by Flannery O'Connor. It's called The Violent Bear It Away. And it's the story of this 14-year-old boy. His name is Tarwater. And Tarwater, terrible name, by the way, Tarwater is living with his uncle who is a kind of self-made prophet. He thinks he's a prophet. And Tarwater is trying to figure out through the entire book, is my uncle absolutely crazy and off his rocker? 
Or is he actually so deeply profound that he's actually the source of truth? And he's going back and forth between this, and he's actually digging his uncle's grave at a point, his uncle's last wish. And he's doing so with this African-American fellow, and this African-American fellow says, yeah, I don't know what to think about your uncle either. And Tarwater says, yeah, a perfect example is he always talked about Satan, right? How can we believe in Satan? That just seems completely outside of reality. And the African-American man looks at him and says, well, what's so wrong with Satan? And Tarwater says, well, it's always between this choice, choosing Satan or choosing Jesus. And it just seems so absurd. And the African-American looks at Tarwater and says, that's not the story of the Bible. It's never been a choice between Jesus or Satan. The choice has always been Jesus or you. Jesus or your own way. Jesus or your own autonomy. Jesus or you. And see, that posture, that posture of absolute autonomy, the posture of insubordination and rebellion to submission, it's hardwired into our DNA. Like my daughter Lainey, when we see authority, we just simply say, I don't want to. And that's what I like what Paul says. Paul says in verse 1, he levels with us, right? Paul knows how we're sewn up. And he says, remind them, verse 1 again, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Why do we need a reminder? Because we forget. We forget. We forget that this should be our posture. We are to be people marked by God's goodness who are submissive to all those God has placed over us, whether that be the government or parents or employers or teachers or coaches or tutors. And now this might be stretching it a little bit too far. This is the words of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a pastor in the 16th century. And he was referring to this concept of submission and authority. He said, in order to serve God, we should not despise nor anger those whom God has placed over us, but we should give them honor, serve, obey, and hold them in love and esteem. That's how I feel about the government. <laughs> and that seems like that's, that's actually kind of far-fetched. But Paul actually says the same thing. Right in verse 1, he says, not only be submissive to rulers and authorities, when he says, be obedient, be ready for every good work, Paul is saying, hey, we're not talking about a bare bones, begrudging, reluctant, or compulsive type of submission. Paul uses these two phrases, to be obedient, and the other phrase, be ready for every good work. And both of these phrases carry the sense of an eagerness, a desire, a willingness from the heart to please those God has placed in authority over us. A readiness and a desire to obey people, authority. That should be our posture. And now, just bear with me here. I want to do just a little bit of a rabbit trail, okay? I'm going to bring up a hypothetical situation. Hypothetical situation, because something like this would never happen. So just hear this on the front end. This would never happen. But I just want you to assume, right, that there is a contagious disease that's affecting the right eye of every single human in the United States, right? And it has the chance to really infect people so much so that it could be fatal. Not a lot of people die from it, but it could be fatal. And so a county health board appointed by commissioners that we vote for, and they receive input and everything like that to make their decisions. This county health board has made the decision 
to help you know, make policies related to public health, they make this decision that every single person has to wear an eye patch over their right eye. Okay? They make this, they make this decision. And it's not everywhere. You don't have to wear it when you go to the movie theater because, you know, you have to be able to see. Or when you drive, you have to be able to see. Or when you sit down at the library to read, you can take it off. Now, just imagine that that was the case, right? I get it. It's far flung. It's very hypothetical. <laughs> Our first thought to that, right, is that is so ridiculous. That's so ridiculous. They don't know what they're doing. And by the way, they're so inconsistent, too. You don't have to wear your eye patch when you sit down at the movie theater or when you go to the library. It's just it's borderline ridiculous. And they expect our kids to do it, too. How are they ever going to be good at baseball? They don't have any depth perception. <laughs> Friends, you know what I've come to realize? As human beings, because this is hardwired into our DNA to be rebellious against authority, we will create 1,000 or more seemingly noble and righteous excuses to justify our disobedience to what the Bible says clearly and explicitly. We will. Notice, Paul does not say, submit, be obedient, be ready for every good work only when it makes sense to your reason or only when it's convenient for you or only when it aligns with your political and cultural sympathies, or only when you like those who rule and have authority, or only when you agree with their decisions and policies. No, it's just a clear and straightforward command. Submit, obey, be ready for every good work to please and honor those in rule and authority. And here's why this is so important. Because as ridiculous as the eye patch is, as ridiculous as that molehill is, there are mountains that could come that we do have to disobey. And Paul wants us to make that distinction, right? There will come times when Christians have to disobey. You actually see it throughout the Bible as well, right? There are times when we will have to say no to something that the government tells us to do. And there are times when we're not going to do things that the government does tell us to do. And that's the line. When the Bible says we cross over into sin, we no longer submit to government authorities. So Paul says, hey, insofar as you're able, submit. Submit to the molehills because the mountains are coming and you have to know when. But until that mountain comes, seek to please the rulers and authorities. Seek to obey them. And I want to move on from this very hypothetical scenario, by the way. I realize it's super theoretical, so thank you for bearing with me on that. But I just want to caution us. I do want to caution us. Before we say things like, they don't know what they're talking about, they don't know what they're doing, this is ridiculous, this is inconsistent, it makes no sense. Before we say something like that, maybe we can ask ourselves a few questions. Questions like, do I know everything about this issue? Or questions like, have I legitimately explored this issue, approaching it with an open mind? Have we? Or have I read in full a study or an article or a perspective or a blog or even a tweet that is sound and well-reasoned that disagrees with me? Or maybe we can ask, does what I read acknowledge any fair points on the other side of an issue? If it doesn't, that might not be a reliable source. And I'm convinced if we do that, at the least, at the least, those questions will humble us to recognize, at a minimum, we might not know everything. And that 
that might give us a charitable posture toward those in who are in rule and authority over us. At least it will give them the benefit of the doubt. I have a family of six, and sometimes I don't know how to manage my household. Right now, if you put me in charge of a small business, that would be an even greater challenge than just my own household. Now ask me to be the mayor of an entire city. Man, I'm completely out of my element. Tell me to be you know, the governor of a state. I have no idea what I'm doing. Tell me to be the president of the free world, and I'm completely clueless. Can we be a little bit charitable to those who are in rule and authority over us in recognition they might know something that we don't, even though we think they're full of it? So let's give our rulers and authorities the benefit of the doubt, and let's pray for them. Let's approach their decisions with a posture of submission. So Paul says, first reminder of how to live publicly as followers of Jesus. He says it starts with rulers and authorities, but it also goes to everyone else, how we relate publicly to all people. And notes, what Paul notes is how we use our mouths. Verse 2, he says, we are also to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling. That word there is actually, we're not fighters. We're not fighters with our words. To avoid quarreling. He continues, to be gentle to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And again, we can find a thousand seemingly noble and righteous excuses to justify not doing what the Bible says on this point. In fact, we can often make our disobedience to this sound virtuous and actually look virtuous a lot of times. Um, you can actually see this in the South. My wife and I lived in Nashville for six years, and they had this great phrase that allows you to say what's the equivalent of a four-letter word to a person, but make it sound like you love the snot out of them. And it's this. They say, oh, Daniel, bless your heart. Anybody ever heard that? I lived in Nashville for six years. For the first three years, I thought people were just really hospitable because they were saying, bless your heart to me all the time. That's not the case. And if you talk to millennials or Gen Z, they're actually the masters of doing this. We can say, I'm a millennial, by the way, we can say whatever we want to people, drag people's character through the mud, engage in backbiting, and you know what we call that? Oh, that's being authentic. Oh, that's being real. Oh, he's just telling it like it is. He's not being fake, right? That's the worst vice of any person in our culture, is being fake. Previous generations had a word for that. It was called childishness. Right? Saying the first thing that comes to your mind without consideration of the other person that you're speaking about. But Paul says, hey, remind people, that's not how we talk. That's not how we talk. Remind them to avoid quarreling. Remind them to be gentle to all people, to be kind to all people. And what I love what Paul does here is Paul doesn't just give us all these heavy commands, right? Because with that, that would just crush us because we all fail at this. He doesn't just give us these commands. He actually gives us the reason why he wants to give us this reminder, why Christians are to live this way publicly. So he gives the reason for the reminder, and he does so in verse 3. He says, why should we be submissive to authorities and show perfect courtesy to all people? Well, he says, verse 3, because for we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
See, a life of quarreling and abrasiveness and speaking evil of others, a life of disobedience and obstinance toward rulers and authorities, that's not who you are anymore. You were once those things, but if you followed Jesus and you believe in the coming of God's goodness in Jesus, then all of those things, though we still struggle with them, they are part of our former life, our life before the appearing and our conversion to the goodness of God in Jesus. You notice here, in very unequivocal and clear terms, Paul gives a description of humanity as the Bible describes. This is, if you want to know the character of humankind and the nature of humankind in the Bible, this is one of the best places to look for it. Paul says that apart from the intervention of God, we are foolish. That is, we're we're without spiritual understanding. We We don't understand the things of God. We're darkened in our understanding, blind to God. We're disobedient meaning we're willing to rebel and buck any authority that challenges our personal autonomy. Led astray as slaves to various passions and pleasures. In other words, we're driven by our fallen desires and passions, and we're passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the character and nature of humankind apart from the goodness and loving kindness of God in Jesus. And immediately, I know many of you are asking, is it really that bleak? Are humans really that bad? And to that, I just want to give two brief responses. The first is this, that even observers outside of the Bible understand that humankind acts in this kind of fashion. Alfred Tennyson, he was the poet, he was an English poet in the 19th century. He wrote a, uh, he wrote a poem titled In Memoriam. It was a response to the premature death of his friend at the age of 22. And he wrote that human life is monstrous, terrifying, unyielding. Human life and humanity itself is, quote, red in tooth and claw. I love that passage. See, what he recognized was that human life, human history is marked by blood and violence and death and injustice. And what's really ironic about that is if you know who Tennyson was, Tennyson was an upper middle class person of affluence who never really had any trial in his life. And he still recognized that humankind, even given all the comforts of the world, humankind is still red in tooth and claw, willing to kill and willing to give other people what they deserve Second response I would give is that when you look at what Paul says in these verses, you have to probe beneath appearances. Anybody watch that show House MD? Yeah, it's kind of a decent show, right? They have kind of these far-flung ideas of these diseases and only House can cure them. Well, House uh, MD, one of the episodes was the story of this guy named Nick. And Nick had this rare brain disease that was right near his brain stem where he lost all inhibitions to say what he thought right? So whatever he thought would just come out of his mouth. And House says to him in the story, he says, your only hope is a complex operation near your brainstem. Even if you survive, you may never be able to breathe on your own again. And despite, yeah, I know, it's it's pretty ridiculous. But despite the risks, Nick wants the surgery because constantly voicing his thoughts is destroying his life. Let me ask you, would you have the surgery? If you go below the appearance of your niceness and you're 
thought life without inhibitions was just brought out for the world to see, would you still have that surgery? I'd wager that you would. Because if you're anything like me, you know that after 24 hours of no inhibitions, the truth hidden underneath all appearances of niceness would expose a picture of envy, malice, and hatred, a general slavery to different passions and pleasures. We know this in kids, right? Kids will say whatever they want without inhibitions. My daughter Jane the other day, we were hanging out on our bed right before we were all about to get ready for the day, and it was such a beautiful picture. It was my wife and Jane and Annie and Eli and Lainey all having this great, sweet family moment. I'm about to have a shower, and I thought, I'm going to go lay with my family in the bed and, and snuggle them up. And I got in the bed, and Jane said, no, Dad, go take a shower. <laughs> right? No, I don't want you in here. So is humanity that bad? Has sin corrupted us to this extent? Yes, because once you probe underneath appearances, it's clear. Humanity by nature is red in tooth and claw. So Paul says, here's the reason we live publicly with this posture of submission and gentleness and perfect courtesy toward all people, because that's no longer who we are. That's who we once were. Paul, in the next verses, what he does is he actually takes all these threads from throughout the Bible and he weaves them together. This is Genesis chapter 2, back to Genesis. Remember, God gave Adam the first human being. He, he creates him and he forms him. And then we read these words. God formed the man of the dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. See, God gave Adam... His first creature, his breath, his spirit, gave him his spirit and life, so he became a living creature. And when Adam ate from that tree of knowledge of good and evil, insisting on his own autonomy, the result was a humanity enslaved by sin, foolish, disobedient, and subject to the wrath and condemnation of God. And all of that is stirring in Paul's mind as he moves on to the next verse. He says, you're not that anymore. You're not in Adam anymore. And he continues, verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, when Jesus, the second Adam, the better Adam, appeared and took on flesh, when God himself became man to live for us, we're told that Jesus, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. See, Jesus saved us, giving us a new life, a new measure of his Spirit which he earned and secured. That's what those terms, regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit means. It means our old life is no more. We're no longer those people objectively. We were once defiled by sin, but now we've been washed by the Spirit of God and the blood of Jesus. We were once spiritually dead, foolish, but now we're regenerated, born again. We have new principle of life in us. We were once condemned, subject to God's wrath and eternal judgment in hell, but we're now justified and heirs of eternal life. That is who we are in Jesus, the better Adam. 
And through faith in him, we receive God's spirit again and we receive forgiveness of sins. So how can we not live publicly this way? That's what Paul's saying. So return to the question that we began with. Is Christianity good for the world? Christopher Hitchens, he kind of expands on his second point. Remember his second point. He said many of the teachings of Christianity are, as well as being incredible and mythical, immoral. And he continues, he said, I would principally wish to cite the concept of vicarious redemption. That's the idea that through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven because of his death in our place and made new because his spirit has been poured out on us. He says, this concept of vicarious redemption, whereby one's own responsibilities can be flung onto another, a scapegoat, and thereby his sin is taken away, that is immoral. And he says, in my book, I argue that I can pay your debt or even take your place in prison, but I cannot absolve you of what you've actually done. This exorbitant fantasy of forgiveness is unfortunate, to say the least. Paul, on the other hand, says, actually, that's the only way. That's the only way. If we want to be of any use to the world, Paul says it's only in Jesus' death, only in Jesus' resurrection, only in Jesus' gift of his spirit poured out upon us that we can be changed from people who were once foolish, once disobedient, once malicious, once hating others and hating all, to being people who are forgiven, renewed, born again, regenerated people to live lives publicly in submission to rulers and authorities and lives at peace with all people. Close with this quote from Václav Havel. Václav Havel was the first president of the Czech Republic, and he was the first president following the Holocaust and following the Cold War, and he put it in clearer terms than I can put it. He said, the pursuit of good and the good life will not help humanity save itself, nor is democracy alone enough. What's required is a turning and seeking of God. Paul says the same thing. As Christians, followers of Jesus, we've been born again because of the appearance of the goodness of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you so love the world that you gave your Son that you as our Savior by your goodness and loving kindness have changed us and transformed us. And God, would you make this true of us that we would be a people not recapitulating, not imitating the sin of Adam and our rebellion against authority, but God, would you make us people in our interactions with the governing authorities and interactions with all people that we would be people who submit that we would have that posture and we would have a posture of being willing to do good to all people. God, not because we can do it in our own strength, but only because we can do it. Because Jesus, your son, poured out his Holy Spirit upon us and gave us a new life. And we have been changed by him. God, help us think of these things now as we pray and sing and give glory back to you, our great God. We pray this in Jesus' name by the power of your spirit. Amen.